Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 465. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the Evergreen Network, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. So this week's interview is with Cindy Cowan. Cindy's an Emmy-winning, Oscar-nominated film producer, recipient of the Women of the Year Award in 2018 from Women's Image Network, and the Humanitarian of the Year Award in 2019 from the Hollywood Women's Film Institute. Cindy also sits on the board of Little Kids Rock, Children of Manning Hearts, the World Women Foundation, and sits as an advisor to grassroots soccer and music for relief. In this conversation with Cindy, we discuss her background, the role of songwriting and filmmaking in today's world, the importance of storytelling, as well as her amazing work in charities. You'll find all the show notes on MinterDial.com, and please do take a moment to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Cindy Cowan, what a pleasure to have you on my show. So I, I know a little bit about you, and obviously we talked a little bit before going on the record button, but um, you were brought up in Florida in the hospitality industry. And you kind of, by the age of 10, you met, I don't know, half of Hollywood. And then I, and then I found out in one interview that you said, oh, my parents never wanted me to get into the business. Yet, here you are. So what made you disregard your parents' advice and get into the, the business and make the career that you've had? Um, it was very against their best wishes, by the way. Um, yeah, I had a very weird upbringing. My dad had the biggest hotel in South Florida and we had the likes of Sammy Davis Jr., Liza Minnelli, Barbara Streisand, Frank Sinatra, you name it, they all played there. And so my childhood was growing up with the biggest. Um, and to their credit, my family, you know, we were Southerners. We, I come from a very um, normal family other than that. And, um, you know, all the girls in my family got married very early and stayed married and, you know, we're very Southern females. So for me to leave and go to Harvard and then choose another profession and leave Florida was a really big deal to them and entertainment to them was just scary. They viewed it as, you know, a very fast life, drugs, girls, rock and roll, you know, everything that would be a parent's worst nightmare. So they were definitely against it. Um, when I graduated from college, I took that infamous year off that people. The gap. Should, I know people should never do that. Um, my desire was to go and get a Ph.D. in psychology but I was dating the lead singer of a band at the time. And so I needed a night job and I got a job with CBS and I kept getting promoted. And I ended up on the CBS evening news um, on the production end. And that started my bug with producing. Knew I didn't want to stay in news though. Um, quit actually on a story that I refused to cover, which was a very sad story in Florida where a little boy named Adam Walsh was decapitated. He was kidnapped and decapitated. And his father, John Walsh, ended up starting America's Most Wanted. 
And that father worked at my dad's hotel. And so they wanted me to take the cameras, be at the house. If we could get the story, I'd be the first one to get it. If we couldn't get the story, we'd be in the bushes and we'd film it anyways. And I refused to do that, which bought John Walsh extra time before the cameras descended on him probably the next day. And um, by accident, I became a songwriter. Actually, my first song was with an artist in the UK named Sunita and a very first time producer named Simon Cowell. And um, I've heard of him. Yeah, right. And I'm lucky enough they took my song and that started my career as a songwriter for a bit and then um, segued into feature films. I just knew I had the bug. And so I started as a PA and worked my way up, started my own company and the rest is history. So um, I did it. So in the midst of what you just talked about, Cindy, um, I can't help but think that there's an issue of ethics. There's an issue of ethics because you talk about this decapitation and, and the idea of production. Oh, it's going to be good for eyeballs, but this someone's head is rolling. This is a kid. And in, in, in news, but in entertainment too, there's this ethical line. And how did you bring that into what you're doing? Whether it was obviously your degree at, at Tulane or at Harvard, you know, you, you, you want success, but is it at any cost? No, for me, it's not. I mean, look, I'm lucky enough that I, I've never been starving, so I don't have to do things at any cost. But, you know, I've been, even since I was a little girl, my dad was like, what made you so ethical or what made you so moral? I was the girl that, you know, I remember, and this is a true story, there was a, a I, I, ended up passing a van, so to speak, that had cows and cattle that were on their way to be slaughtered. And I convinced somebody, I think I was 16, must've been, cause I could drive, but I was probably 16 years old and I convinced them to give me the calf, which went into the back seat of my car. And I went home and said to my dad, we got a cow. My dad was mortified, but I saved it. And I would also do the same thing with other animals. I was this, my dad was a saint, my mom and my dad, because I would oftentimes go to the pound. And if it was a three-legged dog or a one-eyed cat, it was coming home with me, anything that was on death row. So, um, you know, it's been something my whole life. So, you know, it was interesting to get Humanitarian of the Year. I think out of any award I'm ever going to get, that is my favorite. Um, I don't do things for the recognition. A lot of people don't even know what I do. Um, you know, I, I feed the homeless constantly. Um, there's not a, a Thanksgiving that I don't, and usually every couple months, you know, and it could be as simple as, you know, I'll make a hundred meals, you know, with waters and stuff. And nobody knows it's not on my Instagram. It's not for that. It's for me. And sometimes I don't go through real charitable organizations, because I want to see myself where it's going and what the need is. You know, I think the problem right now for me is I've always been a part of certain charities and the needs of what's happening in the entire world, not just in America, are changing so rapidly that even I don't know what to be a part of and where my needs need to go because it's so vast. Um, but homelessness, especially because I'm in Los Angeles, is becoming a very, very, very big deal. And, you know, I, again, I, 
I, um, to me, it's what life's all about, paying it forward. And, you know, somebody up there blessed me. I've been very lucky with a life. And um, so I try to pay it forward as all, you know, as much as I can. And that doesn't work for everybody. Some people, I dated somebody once who didn't understand. I remember I was taking all the mattresses off my bed and replacing them. And so I wanted to take the mattresses down to downtown LA and <clears throat> allow people on the streets to sleep on them. He didn't understand that at all. He didn't understand it. And he was an actor and he wanted mm -hmm. to photograph it. And the whole thing was very foreign to him. And I was like, wouldn't you want to sleep on something if you could? Wouldn't you want to have a blanket? Wouldn't you want to? So I, you know, it's different strokes for different folks, but for me, giving back brings me happiness. So something I do and will always do. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like things are changing at a pace in these days, and it, it's hard to make sense of everything. So how, how does one keep one's north in, in this changing world and know what to invest your time in and and uh, which charities to choose? What's your path on that, Cindy? I mean, I do, I used to do charities all around the world um, globally, and now I don't because I, as much as I want to help everyone, I have to help what's right in front of me. So, you know, I, I don't know what works for other people. Usually I tell people to do charities that are personal to them. You know, if it involves a certain illness, then obviously there's a personal thing there for me um like i said it's you know at one point i ran little kids rock um interestingly i don't have kids but it was very important to me to allow children being a psych major to have after school specials where you know children of any um economic status would be able to partake in music programs and after school specials that people didn't realize help your right and left brain thinking, keep you out of drug off drugs, keep you out of gangs, and also allow a higher percentage of kids to go to college. Um, so that was very important to me at the time, still is, but like I said, now we've got a bigger issue with homelessness everywhere in Los Angeles. So, you know, I'm kind of segueing to that right now because I can see the immediate difference. So, you know, it's charity is personal. I, I urge everybody to do whatever they can at any time. And, you know, this is just what works for me. I do like the feeling, Cindy, of, of focusing on, on, the, on the local. I feel like some people sometimes get a little bit distracted and will tend to want to invest in something in, in Zimbabwe yeah, yeah. or in, in elsewhere, whereas actually charity at home on my street, with my neighbors, with my town, is is much more concrete, yeah. and and hopefully you can also make more effective your Absolutely. participation. Definitely, it's important that we see it that you know you're making a difference. You know, it's important, and I always tell people, even if you don't have a dollar to your name, go hug somebody, go mm -hmm. take them across the street. Go, there's, there's always something you can do. So, you know, um, go read to somebody, you know, anything. Yes. So you, you talked about Little Kids Rock, and that's something that really intrigued me, uh, Cindy, in your past. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm a musician myself, and I, I love the effects of, of music. I've been to maybe 800 or 900 concerts, and I, I see how music's had an impact on my life. And I was wondering, 
how the role of music in education could be more improved? And maybe how would you evaluate education as it's happening today and what needs to happen to improve the way we educate our kids? I mean, look, I, I can only speak for the United States and education is becoming a real problem here. Um, I don't know what it's like everywhere else, but you know, with the last administration I watched after school specials be cut totally. It's just, you know, I, I don't understand it. They're so important. Um, kids need something to do. And for many different reasons, you know, not only does it help again, like I said a second ago, their right and left brain thinking, but it helps them socially. It helps them, you know, anything that they're doing will help them learn. You know, who knows if the kid that's running the track is not our next Olympic athlete or the kid playing the instrument is not going on to start the biggest rock band. But beyond that, like I said, kids right now desperately need social skills. We are seeing kids more and more and more socialize in a phone and on a small screen to the point where I don't understand how children are going to learn empathy whatsoever. And that's a problem. And I'm lucky enough that my generation didn't grow up with any of this. In fact, I was saying to somebody, my generation got real lucky. The Vietnam War was before us. The only thing we had probably of significant note when I was growing up was the AIDS crisis. And, you know, that didn't affect me directly. These kids nowadays are dealing with guns and coronavirus and you know, everything going to the metaverse and um, just the dichotomy of the hatred of young against old and black against white and religions against non-religions and mass against no mass. And I, I don't even know where to begin of what's happening. I can't imagine being a child right now. I, I just can't. And it is so important for families and for teachers and for friends, for these kids to go out and realize that they need to socialize with their friends because if their friends become more and more of these anonymous characters on a cell phone or a laptop computer, I'm really worried about them. I'm really worried about us as, an, as a society as a whole of what happens to us and the next generation. I, you know, it's sad, but I always say I'm so glad I'm older right now. I don't wanna grow up in a fake universe. I wanna go out to lunch with real people and have real friends that really care about each other, not some fictitious person that might or not, might not have my best interests at heart. So this might be a little bit um, tricky, but the fact that you're a Southerner in the United States, to what extent does that inform that particular opinion, do you think? And is that something that's particular to the Southern mentality? I mean, to me it was. Um, Southern mentality is very hospitable. You know, we're always like, there's always food in our refrigerator and there's always a bed that you can sleep on and you're always welcome to come over. And so, yeah, I mean, that is a very big difference. I feel that Southerners are a lot more welcoming um, than other regions, so to speak. Um, you know, and yeah, I'm sure that had a lot to do with how I am. My house has always been that way. You know, I don't even drink alcohol and there's a ton of alcohol here. There's always a bed waiting for somebody. And yeah, it's just... You know, again, it goes back to it feels good to get back mentality. I've always been that way. So if um, I can help somebody, why not? It just means I'm in a position to help them, which lets me live my life in gratitude. 
And, um, you know, I have a very big Instagram following and it's weird. Somebody was talking about it the other day and, you know, it used to just say positive posts only and that's what it is. And I guess that got more and more people following because I, you know, I don't preach ever. I can only tell people how I live my life, but if everybody could find one reason to find, to be grateful in the morning, you'll end up having a much happier day. Even when you think things are going absolutely awful and you might think things can't get any worse, but they can. So be grateful for anything. And the one thing you may have, if it's a roof over your head, if your parents are still alive, if you got a dog, if you anything, whatever makes you happy, be grateful in that moment and, and you'll come out of it. I just had a recent um, interview with a psychologist, Manfred Ketz-Devries, who's written 60 books. And uh, we were talking about the power of positive thinking, positive psychology. I was wondering, how would you describe success? What does success look like in your eyes? Success is different for many people. Um, success could be monetary. Success could be you know, you've climbed the ranks and have your own company. To me, success is happiness. Success is a goal that you have set and that you've accomplished that has created happiness, internal happiness for yourself. So again, success could be anything, but for me, success is I've set a goal, I've accomplished it, it's made me happy. And literally it's that simple. You know, somebody else might go into success as dollars in a bank account. Um, that's never been how I how I um, see success. To me, it's, 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 again, it's gratitude in knowing that you've accomplished something that is but joy to, to your, your person. You describe yourself as being a dreamer and a doer. And so it seems to me then that in order to have success, you kind of need to figure out what you want to dream about. 100%. 100%. I've always been, and by the way, Imagine is my favorite song, you know? Well, the Beijing Olympics and a few others before. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's literally my favorite. Um, yeah, I always tell people to dream big. I mean, what is it that makes you happy? I think the problem is so many people are stuck in, be it relationships or jobs that don't make them happy, that they live their lives on remote control. And they go to bed every night and wake up every morning and they start all over again with the same partner that's not making them happy or the same job that doesn't fulfill any kind of value or purpose for them. And that's, that's a shame. You know, I went out of the confines of what my family wanted um, to find something that worked for me. And, you know, I wouldn't change my life for anybody. You know, I always had people saying, you know, who would you want to be if you could be anybody? Me. I literally have the greatest life out of anybody I know, but, um, and I don't say that in a bragging way because my life might not be perfect for somebody else, but for me, it's fabulous. And I've, you know, I've realized most of my dreams and being such, um, I'll never stop dreaming. There'll always be something else I'll want to accomplish. So it's, it's fabulous. The world's best known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. 
Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. So you, you've uh, sung, written songs, produced films, and I was wondering, as we look at today's world, to what extent or how uh, entertainment today, uh, what's, what is it, what's its role in entertainment today? I mean, look, what entertainment is doing right now and what its role should should be are two different things. Uh, I'm perplexed at what entertainment is doing right now. Um, you know, we had a year last year of Oscars that nobody watched because to me, it got a little bit too preachy. And by the way, that can backfire. You can say, OK, we get it. Um, this year, for whatever reason, you know, I was talking to someone the other day and saying, you know, when I was growing up, my my high school show was Beverly Hills 90210, you know, and before that we had the Partridge family and, you know, they were wholesome shows. And now the kids have euphoria and it's dark. Um, and a lot of these shows are very dark and they're glorifying things that we're hearing in the news, whether it's freedom of sexuality or sexuality in general, you know, um, down to drug use and, um, I, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm very, it, it's fascinating to me to watch the psychology of what's working and what studios are greenlighting and what the streamers are greenlighting. When we're coming out of something that has been so dark, you would think that people would want to see things that are light. You know, movies are supposed to be fantasy. If they're not teaching you, meaning it's a biopic, um, or they're not flat out entertaining you, meaning like Marvel or DC Comics, then it should be um, it should be something that is fantastical that takes you out of a moment that you're in. But I not, I'm not seeing that. Um, if you look at the Oscars this year, also they're very depressing, and I wonder how many people will actually go and see them. And yet, it's what the studios are greenlighting. So I, you know, as a therapist, it is not what I would recommend. Um, but it's I guess what the people are asking for. And again, it's, 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 if I ran the studio world, I would make things a little bit lighter and happier. I mean, my favorite movie this year was Sing 2. So I don't even like animation, but it was fun. And it was, and like I said, it was fantasy. And I got to laugh for a change in a world that's going very dark. And so that's what I would encourage people to see are movies that can lift you up instead of keep you in this abyss of, of downward spiraling. Mm. And I, I, I don't know if people are actually looking for what they're looking for or they're being told to what to look for. I feel like media has said, well, instrumentalized what we're supposed to be looking for. And yeah. then this is, this is the party line, quote unquote. Yeah. And uh, anything that diverges from that is not healthy, but it, it leads us to a very sanitized thing. And yet comedy in particular is is the one area where we always know we can 
we can confront different lines and we can push our society to understand who we really are. And if it's, but if it's all about, you know, the number of tickets that we sell and like media in general or news, then is it really serving its real purpose? Probably not. And I, you know, it's a quandary of what is being greenlit and what we're being told to watch, see, or do. I, I don't understand it. And, you know, I hear in America people saying, you know, well, this is an American thing. And no, it's not. You know, I have friends all over the world. You're experiencing the same thing we are. Australia is experiencing the same thing we are. You know, uh, it's everywhere. I don't understand what is happening and what the overall agenda or purpose is. And I'm not trying to be conspiratorial. I just don't understand why we can't um, experience and see lighthearted things and, um, and find a common ground of just happiness right now. I, I, it's a, I don't understand it. My, my feeling, Cindy, to express my opinion is that we need to learn how to countenance difficulty Mm-hmm. And to speak about the the dark side uh, in a way that is healthy rather than sort of critical and 100%. say you, you're bad. We need to be able to put things out in the open and talk about them rather than sort of shove them under some carpet. I so I um, I wrote I did a film uh, about my grandfather who was from South Carolina, and and certainly not a state that is, I would say, glorified in much of the news. But what I did learn through the people I interviewed and and filmed was this idea of the Southern culture and Southern hospitality. And one thing I I really appreciated in my research was a different understanding of death and a different understanding of what is tough and how to deal with that, as opposed to sort of a synthetic, make everything perfect, you know, make money, kind of approach. And I I feel like we've lost our ability to have tough conversation. I agree. I agree. But as uh, somebody who studied psychology, I, I don't shy away from the conversations and nor do I attack. And I think the problem is, again, via media, et cetera, we everybody is so polarized right now. And I try not to be. In fact, most people want to start an argument with me and try, but then they realize I'm a centrist. And I really am. Even in America, Republican, Democrat, I don't want to go either one. I see value in both sides. And so as soon as you say you're a centrist, then the argument's gone. And so all of a sudden, they don't know what to say, because they're all, you know, they're ready to fight you. And you're like, I don't want to fight. In fact, I really am right down the middle. Same thing with vaccines and non-vaccine you know, people. I am vaccinated and I'm happy, happy to listen to the people that aren't. You know, and I don't know what's right or wrong. I only know that I went with science. Does that make it right? I don't know. I'm happy to listen to both sides as long as you've got a real conversation to to be had if you're going to show me some website that i've never heard of before um you know that's taking me right to china or whatever i'm not having those conversations but if you can legitimately show me something and teach me something you know 
I really want to learn. So um, I'm happy to have those conversations. And I wish more people were instead of saying, I'm drawing a line in the sand and it's my way or no way. That's not right. We all need to learn right now. None of us know what is right or wrong. None of us know, um, none of us know what's happening. So um, all I know that it, you know, that a lot of people are fighting and being polarized in a way I've never seen before all around the world, not just here. And, um, and like you, I'm trying to find the happy middle ground to have conversations. And I think as long as people would take a middle ground, there wouldn't be arguments. You know, rather than fighting for your side, say, teach me, but be open to hearing from my side as well. And then let's try to meet in the middle. So my reaction is I, I, I feel that the right and left are, are rather arbitrary constructs and that they, you, you, there's no real validation or reasoning as to why the right has all this platform or the left has all this platform. So a lot of the people who are, are my listeners are, are typically in business and things I like to talk about are storytelling. I also like to look, talk about psychology, of course, within management ideas. And I was wondering with your psych background and, and all your experience in songwriting and filmmaking, to what extent storytelling is important and how does that play a role in your life? Storytelling is everything. I mean, I don't want to do movies that I'm not deeply attached to the story because it's one to two years out of my life. Um, not to say that I won't. I need a paycheck like everybody else. So for every one or two movies I do just to make a paycheck, there will always be one or two that I do because it's important to me. So, you know, I gravitate to biopics. I love reading. People are surprised how much I know, or at least can have a, a bit of a conversation about, I'm so sorry. You, ha you, you have some people I, trying to contact I, you. Yeah, I know. And I keep turning my phone off. It says power off and there's two and it keeps going. Um, so storytelling is everything to me, um, you know, um, and I'm doing serious storytelling right now and fun storytelling and, you know, everything that I talked about. Um, I realized with the business heading, the film business heading to an area that I wasn't sure about, as we previously spoke about, meaning um, some of the bleaker stories that are kind of jamming an opinion down our throats. Um, you know, one of the things that I had never done before was combine music and film. And so I went to the studio, Sony, which I do a lot of work with and said, can we start doing those? And so um, that will be a main thing of mine going forward is to tell music driven stories, um, both biopics and musicals and otherwise. Cause again, I think it, it leads to fantasy and music is, is happiness. I mean, you know, even if a song that you heard makes you sad because it, it was part of a breakup or it's the blues. It, yeah. It will bring you to a place that eventually will make you smile. Music is great. You know, have a really bad day and put on really good music. And by the end of the day, you'll be, your head will be bopping and your, you know, your foot will be tapping and, and it's everything. So that and teaching people. I, I also love to find stories that I didn't know about that I can run to my friends and go, okay, I didn't know this. And how do we, let's figure out how to make this. And um, I love, I love those things. So, so I, 
as you know, I, I, I like my music, but I also, I, I think there's a space for the, for accepting the sadness of music and, and, and knowing how to have a, a mourning of sadness and, and to accept sad events. And I think people are very quick to sort of want to brush aside and, and then give it a label, depression, or put me a blue pill and, and get over the sadness. I, I feel that music is also a way to get through sadness. It's not necessarily to, to drive happiness, but it's to, it's to bring you through a feeling, a story, and allow you to connect in with your sadness. And I feel like that, that's what I appreciate of music yeah. as opposed to just, you know, getting me to be happy again. It's, it's a process of allowing disconnection or sadness and, and unhappy events. Yeah, we yeah. need to process that too. Absolutely. Absolutely. But music is emotional and it's great. I mean, try to watch your favorite movie and turn all the music off. It won't be as great, whether it be E.T. or Jaws or, you know. Love story. You can't watch some of the greatest movies ever with, with no music. So, Laura's uh, theme, Dr. Zhivago. Oh, I'm so, yeah. I, of course, Cindy. Um, I wanted to spend the last a few minutes talking about uh, your personal branding. So you have an enormous presence online. And, and I would say that would be something that many people in business would, would love to have. But it's hard to manage all that. So I was wondering, how do you look at your personal branding? What, what are the things that drive you, irritate you? <laughs> Lessons learned about how to manage your online presence. I mean, my online presence is a baffle even to me because um, it was never meant to grow this big. I don't have anybody running my social media. Um, it is just me. I think what was interesting is two things that happened and it, it's fascinating what happened. Um, I have always answered every single person that has commented on me and people are like, how do you have time? Well, when I had 500 followers, I had time. Now I think there's 120,000 and it becomes much more difficult, but that's why I don't post more than once a month or whatever. And literally I get angina when I post, cause I know oh, here it comes. I'm going to have to spend time to answer them. But because I have answered them from the beginning, um, there's a personal connection that some people feel to me. And by the way, the people that follow me are amazing. They make me, amazing gifts. They've painted paintings of me. They've been wonderful. During COVID, it was quite fascinating. There was five months I didn't see another human being. Um, I didn't let anybody come to my house. I was locked here. I went from an extrovert to an introvert. I went from a control freak to I can't control anything. I went down the rabbit hole like everybody else, reading every you know, conspiracy theory and thing that was out there. And you know, like everybody else, if anybody tells you it was easy, it wasn't. So like everybody else, there was a time where I think weeks had gone by and I couldn't remember if I even took a shower or got dressed. And then I decided to go online. I'm not a girl that does lives. I did. I went on Instagram live, didn't know who the fans were, didn't know who would join. And the thing that was fascinating was, and I wanted to talk coronavirus and I would put them on a double screen 
like you and I are speaking to each other right now, I didn't want it to be about me. I basically said, who's out there? Who are my fans? Do you want to speak to me? By the way, you have three minutes and let's talk about where you are. And at one point there was as many as 10 countries on the live and there was about 30,000 people. And it was the most fascinating thing I had done. And so where I'd love some people cut social media down, that was a saving grace for me. I did it for about eight weeks, then I stopped. I got offered all these podcasts, people came out of the blue and were like, you need to do a podcast and we'll pay you and this is fabulous, but it wasn't about that. I think one of the reasons that people do follow me and listen to what I say is because it's very true to brand. You can't pay me to promote you. You know, um, I, you know I, I, everything that I've done has been true. And so for eight weeks, it felt true to me to connect with those fans and to speak to them. And then it was going to grow and become something bigger than me, which I wasn't going to be able to manage. And, um, but it was fabulous. And, you know, I wanted to know what was happening in Russia or Israel or the UK or Australia. And um, I would, I, I would do that again at, at some point. I, you know, so, so my brand going back to your question has been very organic. The, the brand really is me. Um, it, you know, it's difficult how, you know, what pulls my hair out, having the time to legitimately answer everybody. Um, that's hard. So I'll do more stories now than I will an actual post and then realizing what they want. It's weird. I could put myself in a photo with a huge celebrity and they won't like it as much as if there's a photo of just me. It is weird. I don't get it. You think they would want to see more. And then I think it's more of what I write. And, you know, and I find in the branding of what people do write under their posts is some people just write too much. Don't. What do you want to say? Say it succinctly. Nobody's got time to read paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs of what you've written. You know, people want to hear what you're doing. Say it succinctly. And, and then, you know, for me and my stories, I take them along on the journey. So people get to see things like that they wouldn't normally see. We're about to go to Serbia. They'll get to come with me. I'll get to show them a little bit of, of behind the scenes. And, you know, um, I try to take them on whatever I'm doing. And sometimes it's not good. You know, I, I, one of the other things that's organic to my brand is I will take you on some of the bad as well, i.e. the lies. I was not doing well. I needed to see people. It gave me a reason to blow dry my hair and put some makeup on. And, you know, and I said, I'm not doing well. And they helped me. So I, I, what, I, what I say to most brands and noticing my own is a lot of brands aren't authentic. They, you know, they're too busy working with ad agencies or marketing agencies and it's not authentic. If you stick to authenticity of whatever your brand is, it's a good thing. You will find your fans and they will stick with you because you're authentic. Including able to reveal your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses. Absolutely, absolutely. It's very important to do that. Everybody's life is not all good. It, it's not. And those people that say, here I am on another private plane and here I am on the beach and here I am in love and here I am this. Life is not always good. And you'll connect with a lot more people by sharing your vulnerabilities. So you're a psychologist. I mean, and I've had other psychologists on my show. This idea of presenting who we are, How how do we know who we are and how much of who we are we really know i mean look who you are is who you think you are 
and that's about what you you can say who I think you are and who you think you are might be two different very might be very very different people and even as if you were my patient as a therapist it might be very different but who you are is who you think you are and that is the the person that should be portrayed good bad and indifferent and again people don't stick to their authentic selves they might fall in love with somebody and think i need to now change who i am so that that person will be in love with me well that's going to backfire at some point at some point you're not going to be happier they're not going to be happy because one of you is is living in an untruth that's the same thing with businesses like i like i said earlier you can go in with best intentions maybe your family wanted you to be a doctor and maybe you graduated top of your class and you're a top surgeon now but if in your mind you're an actor i don't care how famous you are as that doctor you're going to be miserable you're going to be miserable so you have to follow an, an authentic self of who you think you are not who the world wants you to be and you know um and maybe there's a hybrid of both and that's okay too you know um you know that's very okay but um but that answer to that question is tricky because only you know what your feelings are of who your authentic self is i think it's one of the biggest quandaries we have in our lives is is to to bridge that gap between who we think we are and who we really are and and society has this wicked way of 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 forcing us or pushing us to present a perfect instagrammable life yep. and this other part where we're not always great where we have imperfections where these imperfections we're not even proud of and and allowing those to come into our discourse without being sunk because if we just portray ourselves as you know some horrible individual then who's going to find us or want to buy us or invest in our film because well you know she's a horrible person or he's a he's a dimwit uh, so society very quickly sanctions imperfection and yet that's what we strive for are more but I authentic think society is changing in that regard whether they go too far is another question but right now i think the days of the flawless instagrammers that are a certain age and a certain size and a certain weight and a certain look are going to, are going to be over um people don't want that perfect shot shot by a professional photographer in a perfect place at a perfect time they're not going to want that anymore one thing that has happened during covid is vulnerabilities have come out and i think there's going to be a backlash at some point of perfection nobody's perfect so now who can we identify with who who best suits our identification and if you think it is that instagrammer that is again the perfect size perfect shape perfect weight perfect height great but i think you're going to find that percentage is very small and it's going to change i'm noticing i don't know about in the uk but the commercials here are changing and reflecting that um you know i think i saw a dove commercial the other day and you know one of the models had a ton of skin imperfections and that's where they're all going to have to head um you know and also the models are becoming plus size um you know and I think they're going to have a very big um resurgence going after identifiable people versus per perfect people. Well, I think uh, I worked for 16 years at L'Oréal 
So I'm familiar with that thought. You worked in the entertainment industry, which has also generally promoted the same kind of stick thin, perfect thing. Fortunately, women, um, more that women get involved in it, more women understand that life is imperfect, I think. Yeah. And and are far more understanding of that thought. Cindy, how we we must close we can't go on forever although i would have loved to continue the conversation yeah i love um, the conversations with you they were refreshing and deep i hope we didn't get too deep but um they were unbelievably refreshing and um i could talk this kind of stuff all the time so it was lovely how can how can anyone track you down follow what you write produce sure, I, absolutely um i can be found at cindy c-i-n-d-y last name c-o-w-a-n as nancy the number 1000 that's on twitter and instagram um facebook is just my name and um i have a website which is cowan c-o-w-a-n-e-n-t cowan and entertainment dot com and that will show you all the movies and the press releases and things that are are coming next so yeah in the in the funny in the funny things, my one of my longest time tennis partner is called Peter Cowan. Spent the same way, so oh, there you go. close he to my heart. Fabulous, right? He must be fabulous. Tell Peter I said hello. <laughs> Will do. Thank you very much, Cindy. Yeah, so nice meeting you. Hope to chat again. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show, would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash interdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer. A convinced man. I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel free. Trust is a reason. Still, I won't tell the lie. I sit here passively, hope for your respect, anticipating the thrill of your intellect. Maybe I tell myself there's no use in me lying. I'm a convinced man building an urge. I'm a convinced man to live and die submerged. Convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man, challenge my fate. I'm a convinced man, competitions innate. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. Despite revenges and struggle with deceit. Challenge so life's not incomplete. What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die. I 
like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel free. Trust in my reason and let me show you why. I'm a convinced man practicing my lines. I'm a convinced man here in these confines. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man fit to the test. I'm a convinced man. I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman. Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.